Hear now the word of the Lord. You shall not steal. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the, apost- by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that great grace would be upon us this morning. As we come to your commands, as we come to the story of what you have done, we pray that your grace would prepare us to listen. That your grace would prepare us not only to listen for for information, uh, but to listen trusting That these words are are full of power to change us through your Son and through your Spirit to make us more into your image. We ask for that work this morning. We pray that our minds, our eyes, and our ears would be opened to your truth and that our lives would be changed by it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mine. It's one of the first words that we learn. And although we learn more polite ways to say it, that is one of the most defining words for how we live. Mine. Uh, This week, our family bank, while trying to help us with some online banking issues, accidentally merged our account with someone else's account. (laughs) Right, right, which is distressing for just a little bit. Why? Why is that distressing? Well, because it blurs the line between what's mine and what's not mine. What belongs to me and what doesn't belong to me. And surprising as it may seem, God cares about that word. God cares about the word mine. As a part of the ten words that reveal his vision for all humanity, God says, respect the boundary between what belongs to you and what doesn't belong to you. Don't steal. Honor the dignity of your neighbor by not taking his stuff. And that principle, the protection of ownership, as a foundational principle for justice, is repeated and developed throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament. But, 
before the libertarians in the room get too excited, Acts 4 muddies the water, doesn't it? All of a sudden, we've gone from the tea party to some hippie commune where everybody holds everything in common. Right? And it's not just Acts 4. Throughout the Bible, you have this principle of ownership, but you also have, even in the Old Testament, God mandating, mandating, that is, people take a large chunk of what they own and give it away for the care and support of the wider community. So that line between what's mine and what's not mine is a little bit more blurrier. A little bit blurrier than we might think. That border between what belongs to me and what doesn't belong to me might have a few more holes. Might be a little bit more porous than we would like. I think when we, come, when we think about ownership, uh, we, we want it to be like the beach, where there's a clear shore and ocean, right? Mine, not mine. But as we read the Bible honestly, we end up with less the beach and more a marsh. More a little bit messier than we're comfortable with. So, in response to the Eighth Commandment, I want us to think about the word mine this morning. And I want to consider it in two parts. I want to think about the definition of ownership, what's mine, and the direction of ownership. How should I use what's mine? Okay, so first of all, the definition. Ownership in the Bible is always stewardship. Ownership is stewardship. You don't own anything outright, the Bible says. Whatever you have, you possess on behalf of God and in relationship to Him. Ownership is stewardship. Think about the historical and cultural context of the Eighth Commandment. God speaks these words originally to His people as they are on their way to a land. And what is the most prominent word that Scripture uses to talk about that land? It's the word inheritance. This is God's inheritance that He is giving to His people. Now for us, inheritance is, a, is maybe a little extra money or some items of sentimental value that we get when a relative dies. For them, inheritance was everything. It was everything. It's what you received, managed, and then passed on for the survival and well-being of your family. And God brings them into this land and he gives them an inheritance and he will break it up. He'll divide it up between different tribes and different families. And the Eighth Commandment promotes and protects the system of the inheritance passing from one generation to the next. It enables God's people to receive and cultivate God's gift. Ownership is stewardship. Ownership 
is receiving and cultivating God's gift. And that definition should change our grip on our possessions. It should change how we hold what we own. And it should, whether we have a lot or whether we have a little, it should mean that we hold what we have with open hands, not clenched fists. Because everything that we have is gift. Everything we have is gift. And that change in our grip should have two results in our lives. Two results in our lives. First of all, it should free us for enjoyment. You see, if what we have is a gift from God, then we are freed to enjoy those gifts. Our possessions exist for more than that, but they do not exist for less than that. God frees us to enjoy what he has given to us. There is sometimes a false guilt when it comes to wealth. And with that guilt, we always need to remember the problem isn't money and possessions. The problem is a distorted and enslaving desire for money and possessions. Which leads us to a second result. This change in our grip should not only free us for enjoyment, it should also free us from greed. Greed is that enslaving, distorted desire for money and possessions. Greed is when... We cease to hold loosely our possessions, and instead our possessions begin to hold us. They begin to take over how we feel and how we act. They take over our priorities and our values. But nobody struggles with greed, right? Seriously, if you give people a list of sins, if, I, if we did that this morning, if we gave you a list of sins and said, rate these sins from most problematic to least problematic for you, almost always greed will be at the bottom of the list. Because we think greed is Scrooge. Or it's some corrupt politician. Or, or it, it, it is some, uh, it's some Wall Street predator, villain. We don't think greed is about us. But there's a couple of problems with that. Statistics about evangelical Christians tell a different story. There's a study done called Pass the Plate. And it's, it, one of the conclusions of the study was that 70, for 72% of American evangelicals, that they give less than 2% of their income away. The average for American evangelicals, the average giving external to themselves is 2.9%. Now, consider that also alongside of the fact that we are the most affluent group of Christians in the history of the world by far. Greed is a problem for us. 
And let's say you beat the statistics. And my guess is, many of you do, because you are a generous group of people. Silverwood Church is a generous group of people. So let's say we beat those statistics. There's another problem, and his name is Jesus. You realize that Jesus talks about money more than almost any other topic. He addresses and confronts greed more than almost any other sin. More than lust, more than anger. I think that's because Jesus knows more about us than we know about ourselves. I think he might take greed and he might move it a little closer to the top of the list of sins that we struggle with. And if you pay attention, when Jesus talks about wealth, the topic of fear is never far away. It's always in the vicinity. Why? Because the symptom of greed is not only a lack of abundance or of generosity. The symptom of greed is not only a lack of generosity. It's also the abundance of worry, of fear. Here's how I know that I have a problem with greed. Last week, my dad and I had a conversation about retirement. He is approaching that stage of life, and we are talking about the financial realities of preparing for retirement. And I walked away from that conversation, very self-focused, and nodded with anxiety. It's because I struggle with greed. Because greed is a problem for me, And it's a problem for us. And God calls us to a better alternative. He calls us from that slavery. And He calls us to the freedom of a life with open hands. He calls us and invites us to see all of our possessions through the perspective of gift. And know that all that we have, we have as stewards in relationship to Him. Now, maybe that's a nice idea. Maybe that's a nice theory. But what does it look like in practice? How do we do that? How do we put that into practice in our lives? Well, let's consider, secondly, uh, not only the definition of ownership, but the direction of ownership. It's a direction that we see in Acts chapter 4. And it is a direction that flows from the definition. You see, this situation isn't the have-nots taking from the haves. Nor is it the haves being coerced to pay off the have-nots. This situation is everyone in this community, in response to the message of Jesus' resurrection and the presence of the Holy Spirit, seeing, knowing, that all that they have is from God. And if it is from God, then it is also for God. For His purposes. And for His family. If they are stewards, then they are called to take care of God's house with the possessions and the wealth 
that he gives to them. And they began to see their possessions as opportunities to participate in the vision for God's community and in the movement of God's compassion into the world. If ownership is stewardship, then stewardship is participation. All that you have is from God. And if it is from God, then it is for God and His purposes and His family. You should begin, in response to what Jesus has done, you should begin to see your possessions as opportunities to participate in God's mission. If you are a steward, then you are called to take these gifts that God has given to you and not only enjoy them, but to use them to be a part of His work in the world, in the lives of the people around you. Now that's, that's pretty broad. The, the implications of that are, are all-encompassing. It, it has to do with everything that we have, not only our money, but our education, our jobs, and our skills. It embraces all that God has given to us. But we want specifics, don't we? Especially when it comes to money. We want numbers, percentages, right? Okay, so let's talk about giving for a moment. Let's talk about numbers. Let's talk about percentages. Because in the Old Testament, God did give his people a percentage. He gave them the tithe. Three years after your pastor, I don't think I've ever used the word tithe. So we're going to use it now. All right? God gave his people the tithe. The percentage is popularly understood to be 10%. In reality, it was probably more like 18%. Maybe as high as 23%. And he says, take that percentage and send it outside of your home. Give it for the maintenance and the care of the temple and the priesthood and for distribution among the poor. Give it away. This is taken so seriously that the prophet Malachi says that a failure in tithe is breaking the Eighth Commandment. It is stealing from God. Now understand, the tithe doesn't mean this percentage belongs to God and this percentage belongs to me. No, tithing is training in, it's all from God for God. All belongs to me, all belongs to him, and I am a steward. That's what the tithe communicates. Now, having regretted asking about percentages, uh, you now say, but wait a second, Pastor. (laughs) Jesus has come. We're under grace. We're not under the law. Yeah, you're right. You're right. But let me ask you a question. In sending Jesus and in pouring out his Holy Spirit, has God given us more or less than what he gave his people in the Old Testament? And should that have implications for what we give? 
a tithe of 10% given to God and His causes, including the local church, it's a good guideline. It's a good guideline. But it is the foundation, not the ceiling. I think it was Tim Keller who said, the tithe, it's training wheels for a more mature and free generosity. The tithe is a baby learning to crawl when grace wants to teach you to run. That's what we see in Acts 4. We see great grace teaching God's people not to crawl, but to run. And that word, grace, there's the key. There's the key to all of this as it relates to our possessions. Whether it is, whether it is freeing us from greed, which would lead us to steal, or whether it is growth in generosity, whether it's a godly enjoyment of what we have, or whether it is giving away everything that we have, it is grace that makes it possible. It's the message that you are not your own, but you have been bought with a price. Bought not as a slave, but as a son or daughter of God. And the price was Jesus. Jesus who died the death of a thief for the forgiveness and transformation of thieves. The one who, though he was rich beyond measure, became poor so that you could be made rich with the wealth of God's favor, the riches of His grace. I think our most important response to the Eighth Commandment is to receive that message and to allow that message to build in us an inner sense of abundance. An inner wealth that is dependent on the gospel, not on our bank account. Our response should be to open our hands towards God and find not only material goods, but way more than that, the riches of His grace in Jesus Christ. Mine. It's a significant word. It is most significant when God says it about us. Through Jesus and His Spirit, He says, I am yours and you are mine forever. That's where true wealth is found. Let's pray.